incidentally, was uh, Know Your Enemy, which is a Rage Against the Machine reference. Uh, I don't know why Bob didn't mention that, but um, but it's true. Any Rage fans? Any of you? Oh, yeah, there you go. Uh, I've, uh, in a past life, did a lot of CrossFit and was known to just ruin my pace if Rage Against the Machine was on in the first round. It just You can push out some burpees to, to, to rage uh, like no other. It's like dealing with somebody else's inner child all, all completely. Like, this isn't even my rage. But uh, so that's that. Um, this week, uh, we're going to talk about protecting our houses as men. And um, there's a couple goals that I have anytime that I have an opportunity to speak, which is like once a year. So this year, we're going to talk about, <laughs> about uh, yeah, uh, no, but seriously, m- my goal, I, I, in, a, in a past life, I, I wanted to be a Bible college professor. Um, if my Bible college professors actually heard that, they're like, we didn't know that. It didn't seem like that when you were here. Um, but it's true. I fell in love with the idea of uh, teaching people to read the Bible and how we understand what we read the Bible and, and just just diving into the text and understanding. So anytime I stand on a stage like this, it, it's a goal for me to leave you with the ability to whatever text we're looking at that you could go back and you could read the entire book, right, and make a little bit better sense of it. So we're going to do a little bit of that today and then have some practical takeaways uh, for your family. So we're going to be in the text of First Peter and you can turn to that while while uh, we're talking here. And uh, kind of the backdrop, ancient letters, uh, ch- letters written to the churches like this, like uh, th- the writings that we have of Peter and of Paul, um, they would have been sent to the church and read out loud in one sitting, right? So someone would have come and stood up here like I am, and they would have read, hey, this is a letter from Peter, uh, you know, and this, that, and the other. That's one of the best ways that you can read texts like this. First Peter's only, you know, uh, it's only five chapters. Y- you could read quickly through it in about 15 minutes. I know because I've done it every day for the last couple weeks in preparation for this. And you just get a better sense of, uh, of all that Peter's trying to tell the, his little fledgling churches uh, it, when you read it that way. So hopefully after today as we run through some of these chunks, you can do that and, and get a sense of that. But Peter's writing to exiles who are fleeing uh, increasing uh, fear of persecution in the places where they lived. And um, it's, you kind of get a sense it's not unlike what we experience now, where things aren't as bad as they could be, but, man, they seem like they're changing. It seems like things are less and less favorable to the church and less and less favorable to Christianity. And, and a lot of these folks, uh, because of that, they've lost homes and livelihood and, and, and relationships and, and even a little bit of a sense of identity. And so when you lose that much and all you have is Jesus, you, you get a, 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 there's a chance that it shakes your faith up. Peter understands this, and he sees that as a, a, as a risk for the church. And so he writes to and encourage them in light of, uh, of the persecution and the trials uh, that they're experiencing. It's not unlike what Grace talked about uh, over communion. So let's pick up with uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation in heaven. Now, if you read through the epistles in the New Testament, you'll find there's a section like this in almost every single one of them, whether it's Peter or whether it's Paul. And it's just a recounting of the hope that we have in Jesus. These are some of the best uh, texts for, for getting an understanding of the gospel and hearing it laid out bit by bit by bit. Paul does it really well. Peter does it really well here. He opens with a recounting of the hope that's in the resurrection of Jesus. And it's a reminder of the truth of the gospel. And the reality is 
when we live in times where it's difficult to be a Christian and, and, and there's pressure on the church, we need a regular reminder of the gospel. We can't underestimate the difficulty of following Jesus in our time and the toll it takes for us to stand firm. It just it takes its toll on us. Walking with Jesus is a long process of, of constantly messing up and experiencing his grace over and over again. It's made all the more difficult against the opposition of a hostile culture and outright satanic attacks. So we need to be reminded of his love and grace in order to stand firm in the faith. Let's jump ahead to verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So there's a lot to unpack here. Given the truth of the gospel, Peter says this is how we should live. Number one, be prepared for action. Peter expects that the gospel leads to a stance of preparedness. This means being honest about the world that we live in. You should expect to have trials. You should expect to push back and, and have challenges to your faith. And historically, this hasn't been the, hasn't been the, the, the case in our culture. Um, culture's been at least favorable to the church. They've at least tolerated us uh, in, in general Christian values. And especially in the Bible Belt. You know, we can just assume, hey, we're all Christians here, right? But that's kind of led to this situation where Christians in large part have assumed that uh, the church can handle the business of evangelism. They can handle the business of service. Like, let the church handle that. Me, as a person, yeah, I'm just a Christian, whatever. So many Christians have become inactive in their faith. They may go to church. You may put an ichthus on your car or something like that. But you don't share the faith. You don't know how to share the faith. You don't show any signs of being a follower of Jesus outside the walls of the church building. And the Bible makes it clear that faith like this is not sustainable. At best, it's not sustainable. At worst, it's dead. In contrast, being prepared is being ready to be a part of the ministry that God's doing around you all the time. I say it a lot. God's working around you all the time. You just And, and you can be a part of that. You just make yourself available. It's assuming that God's drawing people to himself in your midst all the time and he can use you to be a part of that. Even if it's simply just by loving on somebody or serving people that you encounter at work through the day. Simple things. Just make yourself available. Be prepared. Be prepared. There's opportunities around you to be a part of what God's doing. Second, be sober-minded. Rome was about excess and it was about partying. It's not unlike our culture now. We see a lot of that now. I don't think it was just party for party's sake. I don't think people in our culture just party for party's sake. I think there's an angst that comes with just the meaningless of just pure pleasure seeking. That there's no there's no depth to that. I think uh, Roman culture, like our own, they were just trying to numb out all that angst and, and disengage. And Peter's saying, "Don't do that." In light of the gospel, don't do that. Don't fall into that current. Don't don't be lulled to sleep like that. Don't disengage. Stay engaged. Number three, have your, faith, uh, have your hope fully set on God's grace. 
Our hope is literally otherworldly. It's not this whimsical, like, I hope this works out, or I hope this or that or the other. It grows out of our relationship with Jesus. The reality is when you settle in to the idea that you, you're a sinner, you're a sinner at risk of eternal separation from your creator, except that he, in his goodness, sent his son to live a perfect life and die as a payment for your sins. The pressure to perform and succeed and make your own sense of meaning and have your own sense of hope, all that's off the table. He's taking care of that, right? He's redefined the values uh, of the kingdom based on that gospel truth. Next up, he says, be holy. I, li- I like this idea a lot. I- I've spent a lot of time thinking about this this week. Holiness is, is not purity, right? It's one of these church-, church words that we throw around and don't necessarily always understand uh, what it fully means. It's-, it's not purity. It's not perfection. And it's not morality or, or-, or-, or good behavior. It's-, it's so much more than that. It- holiness is an otherness that marks the difference between creator a- a- and creation. Right? It's other, like, like God is other. Just as God is set apart from his creation, we're called to be set apart from the fallen world. And by contrast, the world will notice our difference. They'll notice our set-apartness and ultimately give glory to God. Now, this seems like a really passive evangelistic strategy, right? So I'm just supposed to, like, be holy and just wait for people to, to see that difference and, and then give glory to God. But the reality is the early church... Uh, they put all their stock in the way that they lived, in the difference in their life. They didn't have the luxury of church history shaping Western culture like we do, like the assumptions, you know, that we talked about a little bit earlier. They didn't have all that. There was no Bible belt to take for granted. They were forced to live lives that, that stuck out and, and showed the difference between their worldview and the worldview of folks around them that didn't believe. And this came even at the risk that, that, that they would be persecuted or that they'd even experience death. So let me take this a different direction as we think about our own current times, our own situation. We're called to set apart our families, right? Particularly as men, our marriages, our kids, to set them apart as holy and to literally consecrate them as something set apart for a divine purpose, right? Almost like an offering. You know, if you think about what an offering is, particularly in the Old Testament times, you'd have bread, you'd have livestock, you'd have grain, you just have normal stuff, right? And the only difference between the normal bit of, uh, uh, of, of grain or, or whatever and the offering that was set apart is that it was set apart. It was set apart and made special as an offering. What does it mean to consecrate your family? Jump ahead to First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is super exciting. I love this. I got really excited about it when I was reading this week. You've been chosen to build a spiritual house that stands out against the backdrop of the world. You, men, in this house. Your families are called to be the literal reflection of God's glory and honor and worship. And the reality is we are only the church when our lives are acts of worship and honor and God, uh, and on, of honor to God. 
the church wasn't originally a separate building, right? It, w- it wasn't this other place that people would go and worship. It, it, it was in the context of the family and the household that the church came to being, right? Early Christians met in homes. Uh, they, they shared a meal together. It was, it was much more of a, uh, of a home-type setting, kind of like our home groups are here. Now let me suggest this. Men, in your marriage and with your kids, uh, your marriage and your kids, they're the building blocks of God's house. So we have, in my house, one of the things that um, that I work really hard, I work really hard to maintain structure and order. And um, it sounds ironic to say that because I've got four kids and three dogs and there's a lot of chaos. But I try really hard, right? Because the reality is God created an ordered universe, right? And he said it was good. So we do our best to eat well. We go to bed on time. We rest well. We wake up. We go to school every day because God's house is a well-built house, and it's ordered, right? On the flip side, I'm super protective about the weak places in my house, right? I got young kids. They're just figuring out what it means to, to, to follow Jesus. And, and a lot of their friends from school and stuff like that, they don't come from families that, uh, you know, that believe. And so I got to be careful, like, what's influencing my kids, Right? I'm, I'm super neurotic and crazy about social media and phones and iPads and all that kind of stuff. Like, I, you know, t- I take this stance of protecting them, right? Because they're, they are, they're being shaped. I want them to follow Jesus. I don't want them to be influenced by other stuff. And it even gets crazy, like, we don't, we don't really do sleepovers, right? Uh, because, I, you know, it's been it's been a fight in my house, but the reality is I can't control what my kids are exposed to at somebody else's house when the, when the adults go to bed, right? I've got girls. Think about it, one older brother with untethered internet access, and that's a lifetime of figuring some hard stuff out, right? This is what keeps me up at night. This is what being sober-minded is, right? The, the reality of looking out of the landscape as a, as a warrior and protector of my home to look and go, man, I can't just assume that everybody's on the same page. I want my girls to love Jesus. I've consecrated them for the purpose of, of knowing that they are loved unconditionally by me. Right? I tell them all the time, I love you so much. And I try and express to them that that's nothing more than a low-resolution reflection of how Jesus feels about them. Right? It's the best I can do, and it's nowhere near comparison to how he feels about you. I want my girls to watch their older sisters come to know Jesus and accept his sacrifice for them as their own. I just want following Jesus to, to be a part of the culture of my house. And I'm not saying that we do it perfectly, but uh, when I think about being called, uh, I think about being called to his holiness and, and the responsibility of building God's house, that's where I go. And it's just the stakes are so high. But here's the deal. The home is the source of leadership in the church. Flip over to 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Listen to this. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, right? You can come to their house and hang out. Able to teach, not a drunkard, not, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but a lo- and not a lover of money. Get this. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? Now, we tend to only dust the scripture off when it's time to nominate a new elder or that kind of thing. But this is the standard of leadership in the Christian home. It was the gold standard. The early church didn't look 
for a successful businessman or a soldier to, 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 to be leaders of the church. They look for good husbands and good dads. And the reality is our church leadership and the ministry that we do is only as good as the men and the dads in our congregation, right? It falls on each of us. And think about it. If the men in our church can't articulate how to follow Jesus to a six-year-old, if you can't explain your faith to a six-year-old, who's going to teach our kids? If the men in our church aren't following Jesus themselves in a deep and active faith, how can they disciple other men? Who's going to disciple the men in our church, right? We all have to step up. And it starts at home. If you can't lead your family in prayer, if you can't have conversations with your kids about Jesus, if, if you can't bring yourself to pray blessings over your wife, how can you lead the church? I'm not picking on you. I struggle the same as you. I, I'm terrible at most of these things, right? I want to be so much better. But a lack of leadership, it's, it's not what I want for my life. It's not what I want for my family. And it's not what I want for my church. This series has been an awesome challenge in so many areas of my life where I realize I'm just being lazy. I'm disengaging. I'm just trying to escape my responsibility. So don't, please don't hear me as criticizing. I'm, I'm not criticizing. As I prayed through preparing for today's sermon, I was convicted over and over again. There's so many areas of, of, of my house that I can't even begin to protect because they're not even built, right? I haven't done the time. I haven't put in the time to, 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 to build all the areas of my house that, that I should. And all I can do is fall on God's grace and let him lead me to be better and more intentional and lead my family. 2 Peter 2, 12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're called to live honorable lives as a testimony to unbelievers. Peter says it over and over and over again. In a world of increasing selfishness and self-absorption, living like Jesus strikes more and more of a contrast, right? Jesus doesn't look like our world, and that stands out. Peter goes on to unpack this idea as it relates to authority figures and masters and spouses in the next couple chapters. And we've covered similar passages to this in, in other series, so I don't, I don't want to repeat that here. But I do want to stress that in the name of holiness, we're called to relate to one another, whether that's our spouses or whether that's our bosses, uh, differently. And stand out remarkably against how the, how the world operates. So think about this. What would happen if you went into your job on Monday and, and, and you, um, you did your job, whatever that is, in, in such a way that your coworkers saw it and had no other explanation except to glorify God, right? That would be pretty remarkable. Uh, this is one of the reasons I love being bivocational. Uh, it's a really fancy word for saying that you have two jobs and one's ministry, right? Um, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I get what, it li what it's like to work in an office because I work in one, um, and, I, and I get the uh, I get the pressures uh, that everybody has in jobs to, to you know struggle with things like being dishonest. And trust me, I'm in sales, right? There's tons of opportunity to be dishonest, um, and it's easy too to like hide the fact that uh, that I follow Jesus because I don't want to look like a weirdo. I don't want someone to write me off. I'm one of those church guys, but I am. So here's the deal: we've been called to be the best in our field, right? Uh, whether you're a carpenter or a salesperson or office manager, we've been called to do that to the glory of God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, 
Literally, the word means poem. Like, we've been made, we've been crafted by God's hand, right? And we've been created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're created to produce. It's what we're made to do. We're not created to sit on the couch and, and, and just be consumers. We're, we're created to create things, right? Just like, our, just like our God. And to do it for the glory of God, to the glory of God. But the fallen world has perverted this, and it's turned production into the pursuit of money or power or status. That's what the world does, right? It takes the things that God's created, and it perverts them, right? But we're made to work hard and to raise our accomplishments to him as honor and worship. It doesn't matter what your job is. You can honor God with it. Now, like I said before, I'm in sales, uh, and it's, it's super easy as a salesperson to be dishonest, right? You can, you can con people all the time. You can make a lot of money. There's a lot of people in the HVAC industry that do that. They're, they're, they're flush with companies that do this. And when I go on sales calls, it's common for people to say, what would you do? What would you tell your family? What would you tell your family to buy? And I say, I, I'd, I'd tell them to buy the most expensive thing they can afford, of course, right? No. Sometimes I do, if it, if it makes sense. No, but I have a, w- I have a way of, of saying, listen, I'm a terrible salesperson. I, I'm really honest. And so if, if you don't need something, I'm going to tell you you don't need it. Um, you know, uh, I'll be, I'll be sh- super straight and honest. And that's not be, being moral uh, or, or being, you know, on a high horse or anything like that. It's just at the end of the night, uh, I want to be able to lay my head down and pray over my day and, and, and know that, you know, to the glory of God, I was as honest as I possibly could have been. Whatever your field is, you can be an expert. You can be an expert in it for the glory of God, and the world will recognize it. You'll stand out. You'll be different. First Peter four seven, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer, prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. It's radical love for one another that marks our ethic. It's not because we're just in and of ourselves, better people. It's not anything like that. It's, it's the radical love that we've experienced from Jesus. And the holy living is not intended to rub it in each other's face or to create competition. Love drives what we do. It's God's love for us. It's our love for him and those around us in response to his great love. Love is intentional. Again, coming from a sober-minded place that acts on purpose and not caught up in the current culture. It's what makes us different. It's Christ's love for us. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is where I want to spend the rest of our time today, uh, kind of unpacking this idea. The devil is actively seeking uh, to destroy our houses. He hunts and he strikes like a lion. But the truth is he can be resisted with faith lived out in community. Now let's talk about lions. Lions are super scary, right? I don't know if you've ever been around a lion. I've not been, uh, I've not spent a lot of personal time around a lion, except in the zoo. And they seem pretty docile there. But the reality is, if you, if you watch videos on YouTube, they're an apex predator. That means they don't, they're the top of the food chain. They don't have any, anything that eats them naturally. Now, elephants have been known to, to kill a lion from time to time. But that's only because the lions messed up and didn't bring enough of their buddies with them to, to, to close the deal. Right? But lions are hunters, and they hunt together as a pride. 
Uh, they stalk a herd, and they identify the weak member, and they isolate it. And many of the animals that, that lions actually eat are, are, on average, faster than them, right? You know, a lot of their prey is faster than, than the lion. But the funny thing about averages is that the fastest water buffalo is offset by the, sh- by the slowest one. It reminds me of that joke about two campers. Uh, their, their camp's overrun by a bear, and the first camper's freaking out, running around crazy. Second camper calmly laces up his running shoe. The first camper turns to the second one and says, what are you doing? You think those, you think those shoes are going to help you outrun a bear? And the second camper says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Right? When a lion comes within striking distance of its, of its prey, it makes a short charge and strikes uh, the hindquarters, knocks it over, kind of like a football tackle. Um, and once it's down, the lion will either break the neck or, or, or suffocate its prey. Uh, suffocate its prey. Nature's rough, right? You watch videos like this; it's it's tough. It's tough to watch. Um, and we enjoy them from the safe distance of of YouTube or Animal Planet or whatever, but. Things would be different if you got a, a text message on your phone that said that there was a lion loose in J-Town, right? Your lunch plans would change, right? Maybe just hang out here a little bit until you get the all clear. You know, there'd be helicopters up looking everywhere, and, like, all the fish and wild folks are jocking up to shoot a lion in Gaslight Square. It'd be a mess, right? If there's a lion loose in your house, like, there wouldn't be much you could do about it. It would do whatever it wanted in your house until it decided to leave or you killed it, right? It's a valid question. Could you kill a lion? Good. Maybe. 13-year-olds in Kenya do it every year as a rite of passage. They get a spear and some of their bros together, and they go take care of business, right? So you could. You could. Not with your bare hands, maybe, but you could do it with the right equipment uh, and with some help. Now here's the deal. Satan is not a lion, and his brand of evil is not natural. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan is so much more than a flesh and blood lion. Listen to that list again. Rulers and authorities. Those are folks that can come mess up your life, right? They can arrest you, take you away. Cosmic powers over this present darkness. I'm not sure what that is, but it sounds scary. Spiritual forces of evil. In the heavenly places, that sounds even more scary. The reality is when when rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil hunt together like lions, the stakes get higher, right? They still isolate the weak. Satan wants to leverage all that power to keep you unknown and unknowable. Matt Chandler says, to be 90% known is to be 100% unknown. Let that sink in. To be 90% known is to be 100% unknown. If you're in a place where you're isolated, you're keeping things. No one, no one knows those dark parts of you. Satan's particularly good at keeping men convinced that it, it, it's not cool or tough to ask for help or to admit that they can't carry this burden alone. But that's the reality. If we're going to be 100% known, we've got to be honest about that. Satan will try and convince you that uh, because it's sometimes hard to read the Bible, that it's not worth it. It's not even worth trying. So you wind up ignorant of the promises of Scripture and not really sure how to talk about your faith. Satan works to complicate your relationship with Jesus. He'll remind you of every single time that you've screwed up and fallen short of God's glory. 
just a question if Jesus really loves you. It gets you in a place where, you know, maybe you question, Jesus really didn't know what he's paying for, right? But Satan doesn't just isolate his targets. Just like lions, he strikes to wound. He seeks to incapacitate us as individual believers and as, uh, as the church collective. And if he can keep the men of our church from having the characteristics of that list in 1 Timothy 3, then he can keep a whole generation of kids from growing up uh, with a meaningful relationship with God in our church. And if he can keep you uh, doubting that God really loves you and that his spirit is really with you and will give you the words that you, that, that you need to say when it comes time to explain your faith, that hundreds of your coworkers miss out on the saving knowledge of Jesus because you couldn't share. If he can convince you to sit on the sidelines and, and not take an active role in your kid's life, then TikTok will explain self-worth to your kids. He doesn't have to worry about them carrying your faith outside of your home because it's just going to get watered down and all that. He's going to keep you focused on mastering the moral behavioral piece, right? Living that right life. So the fruits of your spirit shrivel up into craisins. Craisins are gross. That's what that reference means, right? A little shriveled up fruit. There's no love. There's no joy. There's no peace in your life. And when the world pushes in, your faith just collapses because it has no meaning. This happened during the lockdowns, right? It was easy to go to church from home, right? We could watch church at home. A lot of churches have experienced a, a, a permanent loss of attendance because with an online option, what, what does it make sense to show up in person, right? Why should, I, why should I volunteer? Why should I be any more active than just I can just receive it, right? This is one of the reasons why here at Adventure we're pushing a challenge uh, for our partners, that's you, to be 100% engaged in things like giving. And just like uh, Sarah clarified, we're not asking that everyone give the same amount or that everyone even give money if, if that's not where you are, you know. The Bible talks a lot about sacrificial giving and as a demonstration of faith, but if that's not where you are in your faith, that's okay. There's opportunities to give stuff away like we did in our clothes closet. There's opportunities to give of your time and to volunteer in the ministries here. And the point is that an engaged church where followers of Christ can come together and serve where God's already working around them, that produces fruit that puts the devil on his heels. In Ephesians 3.17 Paul prays over his church that they would be rooted and grounded in love. They have strength uh, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. The goal is to know the love of Christ intimately. So intimately that it surpasses everything else that you know. As you press into him, there's less room for any of that other stuff that used to compete for his place. Matt Chandler says it like this, fueling affection for Jesus drives out the lesser affections. The goal of our lives as men, as leaders of our household, as builders of our house, is to push into Jesus and make it as much about following him as we possibly can. If you have trouble with this, it makes sense. You're not alone. There's great forces leveraging unimaginable power against you. You're not alone in this. You're not alone in that struggle. We do this together. So what's our plan? Uh, my friend Jim Bergen 
I came up with four steps that I really liked, so I'm just going to steal them. Um, the first one is this. Read and study God's word to learn and recognize his definition of truth. Right? We talked a little bit about this. You can pick up the Bible and you can read it. You can take it and you can, you can read uh, the books of the New Testament pretty much from cover to cover. Most of them you can do in one or two sittings. Right? It should be something that you do daily. Take, take 15 minutes at a time and just read as much as you can. Um, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to do that. Really, the biggest thing you can do is pray that the Holy Spirit opens your heart to what God wants to show you. The scriptures will come alive. You may say, I still can't understand the Bible. I've tried all that. I can't understand it. Number two, be in church and hear how God's word and truth are applied to real life. You come to church, pretty much anybody that stands on this stage is going to explain to you what the Bible means. And you stay in there long enough, you keep reading on your own, you keep coming to church, keep hearing that truth, you're going to learn. It's going to make sense to you. Number three, gladly assume sacrificial, this is inconvenient, it's going to cost you something, it's a sacrifice. Sacrificial responsibility. It's a responsibility. Take it seriously and get after it, right? Assume that, that responsibility to lead your family. And number four, surround yourselves with men who are running after the same truth and that will fight with you. This is one of the, the biggest bits of support that men miss out on. We isolate ourselves. We keep ourselves isolated. We don't share. And we end up living life alone in a lot of respects. But if we want to be good leaders, we want to protect our houses, we've got to stand together, shield to shield. So we're going to move into time to to close things out here. And um, if you're someone that's just checking out church, checking out Jesus, and some of this makes sense to you, they're like, yeah, I've messed up. I can't live up to God's standard. I, I want to accept Jesus as my own. Um, you can meet me down front and we can talk through that and I'll pray, pray with you. And you can receive him today. Life can be different from here on out. Uh, if you're a man and you're like, man, I, I've, I've not been a great leader. I need to repent. I need to ask for God's, God's leadership to, to, to help me lead my family in the direction I need to go. We can pray over that too. The invitation is open to everybody. If you just, in general, just, I mean, I, I need prayer. I got this and that going on in my life. Uh, you can come down. I'll pray for you too. Or there'll be folks in the back or up front here too. So let me pray for us now. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we've had uh, to come together and worship this morning. God, thank you for... Uh, your scriptures and the truth that they share. Thank you for your spirit being in this place this morning. God, I pray as men, as uh, we strive to be better leaders for our families, that you guide us, give us grace, and just lead us. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray.
up here a few things. If you guys need prayer, text prayer ACC to 97000. We'll answer those for you and pray for you throughout the week. Um, we want to give online, in person, or mail. Like uh, Sarah said, if you guys still have paper checks, you can use those as well. Um, and technology groups are happening. Kids, kids, adults, all of them. Other than that, I think that's all we got. So you guys have a